0: Namutasa bhagavato Rahato Sama Sambhutasa Namutasa Bhagavato Rahato Sama Sam Budasa Bhagavato Rahato Sama Sambhutasa Puddang Damang Sangnamasami So the uh, Buddha pointed out possibility for us is the release of the mind. It's an option we have. All kinds of things that, you know, the mind is the most important uh, bit, isn't it, for human beings. It all makes us so powerful and creative and resourceful. Bodies aren't that great. It's the mind uh, so this is the you know development that human beings are very much involved with over centuries actually in terms of their understanding and their ethical standards and their sensitivities and their insights into different dimensions and realms of the mind, the yogic realms and the Samadhi realms and the subtle ethereal places that uh, the mind can go to. There's a lot of it out there. A lot (laughs) of stuff. Places it can go to. Uh, Very refined levels, and then also to to, uh, very uh, coarse and brutal. Mm. But generally we look at the development towards uh, the kind of uh, more refined, because this is where we feel the So now you feel more complete, more uh, steady, more grounded, more at peace with yourself. Mm. So it's very simple that development of the mind really is towards its own fulfillment, its own peace, its lack of uh, of shedding off greed, hatred, delusion, various kinds. And so we, we understand what the Mind. This referred to you see, is used because we often we consider mind to be the thinking system, or maybe the emotional system, or maybe a subtle kind of perceptual experience of memories and intuitions. And Buddhist understanding, these are all these are all things the mind can do. The mind can do this, but this isn't really the, the nature of the mind. This is what the mind can do. You know, so we can play with it, we can ideas, we can do interesting things with we can rouse it up, we can um stimulate it, you know, you know, creative bursts of ideas. Um, you know, this isn't this is what the mind can do. It isn't really what the mind is. Uh you know, often our minds are so busy we don't really. We assume that the busyness is what the mind is. You know, it is this kind of happy, unhappy, interesting, confused, powerful thoughts, wonderful ideas, terrible memories. That's what a mind is. Goodness me, you know, how do I sort my mind out? Well, the first thing you do is recognise this isn't your mind. <laughs> this is just what your mind is. is been trained to do, or been encouraged to do, or been goaded into doing, or got lost in, you know. It, build, it builds up these habits and patterns. But this isn't actually what it is, you know. You know so, this is called the perceptions, and feelings, and volitions, and impulses, and uh, these are all, you know, what we call aggregates, or weight, or Forms, mental forms, the mind can occupy or fill up, get involved with, but actually when the Buddha talked about mind, he talked about it as, uh, mind does mind as you know like something that one can says you can develop this you can you can realize what i'm talking about, the unconditioned through uh, one one group of things one group of factors he talked about was through restraining the mind. So not, it's not particularly about a thought or a thing it's just about a particular res- relationship restraining, gathering it in steadying it, pulling it back um, exerting it actually driving it forward pushing it out, making it do something making it pick something up encouraging it, gladdening it appreciating it, cheering it up brightening it up, fluffing it up <laughs> you know Uh And uh, then also just looking at it with equanimity. You know, oh, it's like this. And uh, another, so uh, fifth was uh, not delighting in the spin or being fascinated by the spin of the mind. You know, its spin, its, its kind of flurries, its projections, its fantasies, the buzz of it all. You know, its kind of not being mesmerized by that and uh, inclining it towards Nibbana Nibbana isn't really a thing it's uh, a you might say it's more like a mm, a non a non-activity or a a non-binding up a non-firing up so it's inclining the mind towards release you might say or letting go or cooling down or you know coming out of its bindings, coming out of its, its, its spin, coming out of its fascinations, coming out of its busyness. So any way that the mind comes out of this busy little world, that's, we say that's the movement to Nibbana, that's the inclination that way. Sometimes it's useful, because of the way we think of mind or have an understanding of mind, to really consider mind to be more like um, an energy, you know, something almost palpable, like a, like a, an energy. Because then you can feel it gets knotted. Sometimes it feels really hard. As you meditate, sometimes it feels like just cr- like running around, like, almost like a thing. Mm. You know, it not really a thing. There's an energy there. The energy can be very forceful, or it can be stagnant, or it can be tight, or it can be expansive, or it can be. Sweet, it can be smooth, it can be flowing, mm-hmm. it can be um, fluffy, it can be spacious. It can, it can have these kinds of subtle forms as you get to meditate on. But they work with your mind like an energy rather than as a. You see how you. rather than as just a system of thoughts. Because you're not really. don't have an issue about thoughts or feelings or emotions in themselves, but just the effect on the mental balance, equilibrium, the mental energy, the energy is whipped up or crushed, or whether it's actually just composed and feels steady in itself. So one of the characteristics of the mind that's released is it's called it's, it's, it's steady, steadfast. It's called, but uh, it's not supported by being held steadfast, it's just steadfast because it's collected in itself. Well, like a kind of a, an energy that's just in, in rest state. It's like this, yes, like might say, a ball. When a ball is, well, something perfectly balanced, it's not being held by anything, it's just in balance. And the way the mind comes into balance is through knowing its own quality, its own energy working on its energy you could say it rather like this is one way of describing that process then the energy, the outgoing rush of it is to be restrained pulled in, checked slowed down, calmed steadied mm-hmm. Yeah. the uh, the lethargy, the resistance, the kind of staleness of it, is to be actually gently coaxed and coerced and nudged, and you know, made to come forth a bit when we get tight and cramped and stale, and lethargic. You just come on, come on, lift up, lift up, lift up. You know? uh, to be encouraged when it feels very just wet and damp and cold and fed up. You energy know? <laughs> you know, gets like that. Just to be gladdened with kindness and compassion, and uh, and just bringing warmth into the mind, delighting it, pleasing it, and things. And then to be uh, just to recognise the the spin. You know, when you drop a thought into the mind, how it can suddenly pick up that thought and run with it, like a rugby player. You know. And as six, people, six other things start chasing this mind, running with this ball, and it, you know, you get everything onto it, it's still running. <laughs> Saying, no, you can't, no, you shouldn't, you haven't got you, and it's still going. The spin is so delightful, you know. You get a kind of fantasy of some kind, you know, you're never really going to fulfill or whatever, but just the, the sheer bliss of running. <laughs> Even though your logic says this isn't going to happen, even though you know you, you can't afford it or it's ethically inappropriate or whatever, still you, you pick out and born and run because you just love the run. <laughs> so I think no, no, the running of the mind isn't isn't its best aspect actually. You know, we start to see no actually when you really sense the the. The, the qualities of a mind that's that's composed, not stiff, not rigid, but just collected like a like a wonderful ball, you know, warm, clear. You don't really want it to be whipped up. It feels better like this. And so then the mind then the inclination towards releasing the mind from its fascinations, from its hypnotized images and dreams and negativities and grudges and whims and snags, you know. And actually you know, the aim is really isn't Nibbana isn't some thing that you then see, you know, or have. Nibbana is just this mind itself when it's not bound up, hankering. It's just this very mind itself. It's called the vimuti, the mind released. This is what is experienced, the mind released from from its fantasies, its its conceptions, its perceptions, its moods, its its loss, its woundedness, its you know reflexes and reactions. Then it's it's perfect, you might say. Mm-hmm. So you can see it's a kind of an energy, a sensitivity. Uh, an energetic sensitivity that shivers and quavers with every thought and feeling mm-hmm. or seems to and it's particularly this this uh, habit or this uh, uh, experience that we become very much aware of as we meditate how, how from moment to moment, the mind is rippling and shivering and surging and slumping and holding. You know? And uh, you know, it seems intractable. Mm. But then you don't, when you practice, you don't get caught in what the mind, you know, the objects, the thoughts themselves, but just try to contemplate, you know, bear in mind this is not your mind. <laughs> this is just a channel that's running down. Yeah. It's just that they, they do that. The mind is... Uh, because the mind is affected by this, this un, not knowing its own potential. Yeah. You know, so it's kind of, it's an, it's like a very agitated. So it doesn't really know itself. So, you know, we don't know, it doesn't know itself. It's always looking for something to have, to feel this sense of completion. So it's kind of got this latent hunger in it, you know, to find something, to have something to get something so it kind of keeps, look, keeps this kind of leaning out for a feeling or a thought or an impression it creates them, hungers for them and it goes it's dissatisfied with them so it tries another one you know, then dissatisfied this one so it tries another one, it's doing that because it hasn't really known uh, what it's like in itself mm-hmm so when we uh when we practice we practice with this kind of basic understanding that it's not sights, sounds, tastes, touches, thoughts, emotions, or any of that that's the problem it's getting lost in it you know these in fact are normal normal enough functions and channels to go down as long as you, long as there's a real understanding that that's you know It's suitable, or it's appropriate, or feels the right. You know, we're doing that from the right place. It's when it's dragged out to no avail, to no purpose, to no for no uh, good effect. And it comes at every moment of of contact. In a way, is a kind of a, a choice, isn't it? It happens. We hear something. The mind picks up we We a thought comes in, and the mind jumps up uh, a sound, and the mind kind of the you other know, kind of vib- vibrates at the place of contact yeah. so and the Buddha said actually you know the it's possible uh that contact is really the most uh is a very significant point contact because this is where so the contact is the origination of karma. That is when the contact arises, the mind rises up, starts to do something. And it generally does things in line with its habits, you know. So so it creates karma, that is we act. The mind acts up in particular ways it's learned to act. So we have particular things that we hear a sound or remind me of that, we go towards that. You know? we go towards or we go away from things that we've kind of got habitually accustomed to doing. So it goes down the path of habit. So we keep recreating the same kind of uh, patterns, objects that create that kind of feeling of, of uh, the desirable or the objects that stimulate that experience of the undesirable, the fearful. So a lot of our practice is really checking how valid these these intuitions these these perceptions are, how good is an object of desire, how bad is an object of fear or aversion, so we start checking out the place of contact yeah. and this is part of what restraint is about it 's just holding it back so you can really instead of rushing out, you have a chance to check out. Mm. Desire, and because at the place of this uh, where this contact, desire, or fear, or aversion happens, this is where this spin called perpuncha proliferation starts going. You know. uh, so the mind spins and gets lost. So, when, for example, you know, if you feel some sense of alarm or threat, you know that kind of something th- seems threatening or alarming. Mind spins; and you can get quite violent. Remember, this sometimes uh, happens in um, you know, in public scenarios. And there's one of these, uh, you know, in the um, it was during Kent Kent State University when these people were students were protesting against the Vietnam War, just carrying some placards and protesting, and in the National Guard turned up, you know, and then these unarmed teenagers and youths were some were, were shot, you know, because obviously the National Guard thought or dangerous threat. They didn't really check out or, or didn't see the people actually as they were, as just unarmed people's kids, you know, twenty years old, nineteen years old, they young young men and women. You know, expressing some discontent with government policy, we're not actually causing anybody any harm, but yet the sense of threat and the sense of having to control it all meant they didn't really, really see these people as they were. They saw them as enemies, and they, you know, shot some. That kind of thing happens all the time. You know, we overreact because we see an image of our fear or of our uncertainty, or of inability to control, and then the mind spins out, and we go into these very heavy-handed reactions. Mm-hmm. So we don't actually see what's there, we see things through the lens of our fear, you know, or our uncertainty, or our need control, or we see things through the lens of our desire, yeah. You know. We don't see what's really there. Because mm-hmm. the mind's energy gets stirred up and then it, all these different perceptions and moods start happening. And uh, the actual direct perception, direct perception goes and what's left behind is, is, the, is this, you know the mind's experience of fear. We see things through that. Or the mind's experience of desire. You know, the desirable can make people blind and crazy. Greed, lust, rapaciousness—they don't actually see what's there. Hmm. There's a, a story that comes to mind. It's this, this story of um, this guy, Carlos. Castaneda, you probably Castanada, you probably read his, some of his books, or at least heard of him, kind of a writer who, you know, whether he did or didn't, but he wrote some interesting books about various shamanical experiences. So he became very popular, he was a rather mysterious character because nobody could ever track him down, he was always sort of elusive. And uh, I read an account whereby he'd, he'd gone to, he'd actually turned up to somebody's house and visited them and been talking to them. And he gave an account of something that happened to him when he was in, uh, in Taos, New Mexico. And he was there, and he's kind of going incognito. He was incognito. And he decided he'd, he'd t- t- to work in this uh, cafe, in this bar, you know, short order cook, cook frying up eggs, and, you know, basically cooking stuff for people. So he got this job. And there was, he was working there. And some of the other, one of the waitresses there was really keen. And he went there under an alias as Joe or something. And this woman had read all these books about Carlos Castaneda. She was really, really keen on Carlos Castaneda. So she really wanted to meet Carlos Castaneda. And she didn't realise that this guy working next to her was him. You know. So she got really excited about the possibility of this Carlos Castaneda. And then she heard some rumour that it's Carlos Castaneda was in town. He was somewhere living in town somewhere, so she got really excited, and she, you know, this is the guy she d- dreamed about and fantasised about. This this guy, and meanwhile, Carlos was getting kind of—he was quite fond of this girl, you know, she was a nice person, and he was really excited. And one day, she saw this guy draw up in a car, Mexican-looking guy, drew up in a car, sort of—that must be Carlos Castaneda so she, she he went he came into the to the restaurant and she went to talk to him, and he looked at her and said, "Ah oh, no, I don't want to eat here." It looks like a rat, lousy joint, got in the car and drove off so she was broken hearted you know she Carlos Castaneda had just come into the to the restaurant and she tried to catch hold of him and she'd missed him, so she was really broken-hearted and weeping. so the real Carlos Castaneda kind of put his arm around her and started hugging her and saying never mind, never mind, you're all right, you'll meet him one day. (laughs) It doesn't matter if you never meet him. (laughs) So the the guy she was looking for was right there and she couldn't see him. (laughs) You know, and that's an interesting image because it's like what, um, you know, we have an idea of what we want and what we have and... uh, you know, what we could have and how good it'd be if we got it. We don't realize that's you know, just an idea, isn't it? And what's present right now? What are you with right now? You know, could you see it? Can you see it? Do you see your happiness as somewhere other than where you are right now? So I can't see happiness right now. It's all this I can't see it at all, you know. You've got to come back, (laughs) Uh, and this very coming back, you know, is is uh, it's a difficult thing to get a hang of because when you talk about restraint, it immediately feels like repression, and I don't like that. You know, why can't I be happy? Why can't I go out and have fun? Why can't I go and enjoy myself? Well, yeah, but you know. (laughs) Uh, because that's spin and uh, we do that a lot and then we do get a kind of buzz and a a rush and a thrill and then sort of futters out so the the real happiness is in this mind itself Look through the wrappings. Right now, we're present. So we can see. So what? You know the sounds and sights, but we're not the sounds. We're not the sights, are we? We can see things. We can hear things. We can watch our th- thoughts come up in our minds. We can witness that. We can see it pass. So, right? We're present, aren't we? Something's here. There's some sense of being here rather than. And what is that here-ness? Is it the sight? Close your eyes, it's still there. Is it the sound? Nope. Is it a feeling? Which feeling? Isn't that changing? Mm. so what is it mm. what's here what's really here mm. it's this it's coming back with this journey home you might say yeah. so it's kind of turning the mind around and the Buddha felt it was so important to do that he certainly tried every tactic you know fire and brimstone to a <laughs> whole lot, you know, really turn it around. Yeah. And particularly this sense of um, really understanding this uh, spin, this fascination with spin. It's called uh, Papancha, or proliferation, or projection, for good and for bad. It's exactly what uh, these National Guard experienced. Mm. See something that reminds you of a threatened threat and you spin. And you don't see past that. So the person becomes the object of your fear. Or the person becomes the object of your uh, lust or the person becomes the object of your intimidation, or the person becomes the object of your whatever, you know? Uh, and we don't, so that, we, that spin out. And something in us, even when it's painful, it gets mesmerized by that. It's like when you can't hold the power of that energy, it rushes out, you know? And so this is sadly the case. You know, we actually sometimes don't have the the strength, the confidence, the capacity to really just hold the sense of that rising up of the fear, the rising up of the desire, the rising up of the doubt, the rising up of the whatever it is, just to bear that. So it just rushes out onto. If you can't find someone in the present, find someone in the past. Or an event in the past, drag something up or, or projection into the future. You know, you can see this thing kinda of happening, and these worlds start to open up, you know, the future, the past, the present. Populated, teeming with characters full of life, you know. And then dong, the bell rings, and you wow. <laughs> what was that? That was the Papunja fairy. <laughs> Waving a magic wand. <laughs> you know? And you go, that was crazy. What was all that, you know? You close your eyes and it starts again. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you so there's various things we do. So all these other practices really are about um, coping with this. Because first thing we're just beginning to check uh, what you contact yeah. so you don't contact you try to avoid contacting things that really you know throw you right out yeah. you've got reflexes just immediately fire on some sense of restraint over passions things that cause you great passion you've got to restrain in collecting and soothing yeah. so restraint is also about soothing, easing resting, relaxing the mind you can feel that energy coming back. Mm. So when we practice mindfulness as a body, for example, it's uh, uh, you know it's a way of restraint. It's bringing your mind back into the the veins, the nerves, the flesh, the tissues, the feet, the hands, the eyes, the breathing of the body. Whereas when it spins out, sometimes we lose our bodies altogether. We're just out into this kind of red blur. Mm. So it's just, this is a kind of way of restraining and then s- soothing it, steadying it. Mm. And, you know, we're sometimes just making it, sometimes the mind also says to be made to work, you know. It just starts to, to dribble, dribble and meander and, uh, drift off so give it some work to do right? just follow this breath you know. or put scrupulous attention into cleaning your room or making your tea or writing a letter or just tidying you know and sometimes I notice my handwriting just be a kind of scrawl and I recognize somebody's going to read this <laughs> Right, it's because I can't be bothered, you know. I think, well, put an effort into just forming letters a bit more carefully, you know, and, it, and it's steadying the energy of the mind. So sort of scrupulousness, and that's a lot of that in in monastic life is about that. And it can, you know, it can it can be. You've got to be careful; you don't make it too tight, because it's not a sense of trying to be. Or, you know, super cool and super calm, but just about the the value of feeling and relaxing into what one's doing right now when you're cleaning your bowl, drying your bowl, just like it's the only thing that matters right now. Mm. Or walking, we do walking meditation. Just like you really want to find out how your body walks and give its quality time, like really listening or attending or feeling out the movement of the joints, the muscles, the sinews, the pressures, the weights, how the body does it. So, you know, you're making, giving the mind something to do, but at the same time, you're kind of pulling it in. But you're not crushing its energy, you're actually just channeling its energy. And then you find that you do that the point of it is that the mind, kind of as it becomes more collected, has got a subtle quality of well-being. To it feels it composed. It feels well. You begin to touch into that basic happiness, that basic well-being. Encourage, gladden the mind. It's important to to uh, uh, consider the mind to be uh, a treasure. Uh, 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 King, a queen, whatever, something that is naturally beautiful, but you know maybe it's like a cinderella, you know it 's a beautiful thing that's all wrapped up in rags sitting in the ashes, but at the same time you don't kind of dump more rubbish on it, you you kind of take it out, tidy it up, clean it up, spruce it up, say, Look, you know beautiful, and uh that uh, sometimes things like just just um, I generally practice myself every day something that, that helps my mind as I practice something that's happened today that I felt grateful for not not generic things like my mother my father but you know generic things but actually specific things about today. So it doesn't become just like a meditation technique. We're actually really noticing. Sometime in the day, at the end of the day, something, something somebody did, something that happened, something somebody said. And there's every day, every day, there's something to be grateful for. You know, it could be a, a warm smile, it could be a gentle offer, it could be, um, you know, something to feel good about sunshine warm day you know, drying my feet by the fire having a fire to dry my feet by <laughs> you know it's something uh, and it doesn't take long to actually put that on and that sense of, of, of gladness that comes of recognizing you know the mind encouraged because there's something there to uplift it Something there to to feel blessed by. <clears throat> Sometimes also a thing that I find myself uh, doing to to gladden and encourage the mind. So I'm traveling. you travel traveling; you can get very much in this kind of blurred, you know, state. This, that, this, that. they sitting in the car, sitting in the train. I just think deliberately think of other people's well-being. You know, may they so and so be well. It's you know, been twenty minutes, half an hour, just few people, considering that you know their lives, their sorrows, their joys, their whatever. You know, it's a nice thing to do with your mind. If I didn't do that, it probably just ruminate and speculate and dither, you know, or you know, get impatient. So just put it somewhere where it feels gladdened. Uh, and generating reflections of kindness, generally to me, or uh, being touched by that, is a is, uh, um, gladdening. So you, kind of, you play with contact. You begin to mediate contact. That is, contact means the things you come in, your mind comes into contact with, the things that your mind has in, gets an impression of something that causes it the contact that's about gratitude a contact that's about kindness a contact that's about presence your own body presence so you mediate contact and by contact i don't mean physical touch i mean the impression that, that lands in your mind yeah that's contact so it's there mm-hmm. So true contact is that. You know the story of the, uh, the guy who was another one. Was kind of a little parable with somebody who's you know, uh I think It was probably the Mullah Nasruddin, one of those kind of classical uh, objects of stories. And the, the rumour was out that he was going to be smuggling. So the customs posts were aware this guy's gonna be smuggling stuff into the country. You know, he's gonna be smuggling things into the country. So they kept an eye on him. Up comes this old doddery old guy sitting on a donkey, dragging a donkey behind him with a couple of saddle bags on it. Okay, come over here. So took him, looked in his what's he got? Pearls, no? Diamonds, drugs, anything? Nothing. Look, the donkeys opened up the saddlebags, emptied them all out. Nothing. Must have been the wrong day. Okay, pass. So this happens two or three times. And finally they find out you're smuggling donkeys. <laughs> 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 so what happened, you know? You know? Was there, did, he, did they, you know, what was seen and what wasn't seen? They saw the man, they saw him bringing donkeys into the country. But the contact in the mind wasn't established. as didn't fit the perception of smuggling, did it? They were looking for pearls, looking for diamonds. So it's really what contact means, where an external object lands and a perception arises. This particular, ah, got it. That's contact. When we get stirred when we get picked up for good or for bad that's that little splash in your mind when you get it that's contact yeah? so you start to mediate that right. first of all mediate by the objects that you contact and then also the way you handle contact like you be a bit more spacious around this feeling of happiness or feeling of pleasure or a bit more spacious about this feeling of irritation you know, difficult one isn't it, just kind of feel the pain in the body and just develop spaciousness around it, feel the restlessness in the mind and just develop spaciousness around it, so you you widen your contact rather than tighten it up so you can mediate it both in the objects and also in the kind of focus you put and if you like the attitude you have behind it so if you have the attitude, this unhappiness shouldn't happen to me, that contact's gonna be really painful, isn't it? Hmm? <laughs> you know? So things are terrible, things are going wrong, you're feeling sick and you have the feeling of, oh well, this shouldn't happen to me, well, I'm getting rid of it? I'm fed up with it. that's gonna make it worse, isn't it? So your attitude also can change the quality of contact. You just Okay, it's feelings, sensations, energies coming and going. Not me, not mine. It's not my presence. It's just stuff. Then that contact impression becomes different. You don't get the same sense of being wound up. You become more equanimous. That's mediating contact. You start to see how the, your, your state of mental arousal or composure... Is very much dependent on contact, and contact is something you can now mediate. You know, you can ameliorate it, you can quieten it. Yeah, you can select particular places to to focus on, focus on the agreeable, focus on the noble aspects of people rather than the foolish aspects of people or the bits you don't like. Focus on the bits you find yourself comfortable with. You you can change it. Yeah. So you don't have to go down the channels where we're habituated. Once you see you can mediate, you see that contact impressions are not a certain thing, not a fixed thing. They're dependently arisen. And through doing that, you begin, that being able to mediate contact, play with it, work with it, you begin to sense the mind as Independent of contact. That is, you know, you can go out to something or you could step back and let it pass. You know, You could be very wide about something until eventually you don't even notice it anymore, or you could focus in on it. So you really start to sense the mind as something separate separable from impressions, from these contact impressions. The Buddha said, "This is the way to the cessation of contact, whereby things don't have to stab. things don't have to don't have to continue to be prodded. This is possible." When I came back from Thailand and uh, I hadn't heard any music for five years or so, so I had all this music. I thought, what would we like to hear some of these old records? But I put an old record on. You know, it's just like somebody kicking dustbins over. <laughs> I thought, I used to listen to this stuff. <laughs> what happened, you know? <laughs> It's like the mind didn't enjoy being whipped up anymore. It liked being more settled, so the actual sounded different. It was the same sound technically, but it, the contact impression was different. You know, you begin to enjoy the quality of restfulness. You know? It's not sleepiness; it's composure. And this is where you get this kind of sense of being as contact impressions become less spicy, less, you know, you you don't really, mind doesn't want to rush out so much, then you begin to get this sense of being able to be equanimous and the the composure of that, the collectedness of that. Losing one's taste for the spin, losing one's uh, running out, this is what means niroda, or cessation. Really means not running. So when we, yeah, roda, roda, word roda, it, it comes from the word rud, which means to flow or to run. So niroda, word for cessation, means not running out. And it, then it gives you another way, a better way of understanding what's meant by cessation, because it doesn't mean the annihilation of a particular thing like stamping everything out, (laughs) you know, obliteration. It doesn't mean stopping or getting rid of a thing. It means composing an energy so the mind doesn't run out. It doesn't mean you've destroyed anything. It means you've just not run out. That's all. Rhoda, not running. And so that, that, and the, the loss of interest in running through seeing Wherever you run to, you know, you run for a while, you run for a while, you're happy, you're unhappy, the end of it, you're back here again. You run out for a while, you run out for a while, you're interested, you're excited, you're important, it's valuable, it's urgent, it's necessary, it's finished, you come back again. You're an out front, it. it's a terrible, I can't stand this another minute, I'm not going, this isn't my risk, it's proper for me, how dare they do this, and you come, do that, and you come back again. Yeah. So eventually, why don't, you, why, don't you, why don't you just stay here? <laughs> 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 Since that's where you end up, anyway. <laughs> but there's something about that, that flash, you know, like, the mesmerized, oh yeah, you know, oh yeah. And that's really the bit to work with, you know, so you're mediating contact, softening it, widening it till you get some sense of a little bit more space, a little bit more before that flash occurs, you get to, you know, so you're coming out of the trance state to much more waking consciousness, real waking consciousness, See why, you know, I think Charles Tart, who's a psychologist, he says, you know, they're asking him why, why hypnotism, why do people get hypnotised so easily? He says, well, actually, the ordinary human being is kind of on the verge of hypnosis all the time. (laughs) It doesn't take much to tip into it, (laughs) because that's what we're trained to do, isn't it? And you get hypnotised by the telly, hypnotised by the radio, hypnotised by the newspaper, hypnotised by, you know, and you go, oh yeah, right, oh yeah, that's good, go, oh really, that's dreadful, oh, I don't want that, oh, believe in that. I'll vote for that, I'll get one of those, I'll buy five of these. <laughs> you know, it's because the whole culture is based upon hypnosis. Because <laughs> Because we all just sat here. I mean, you know. <laughs> Good, goodbye. <laughs> the whole kind of financial economic thing just End of greed, right? <laughs> End of hatred. <laughs> End of delusion. But don't worry, there's not much chance of it dying out. <laughs> But in ourselves, you know, we can uh, you know, recognise what you're up against, you know, and you see, yeah, actually, but yeah, there is this possibility, and you really understand that flash, you know, so you make the mind less tight, less tense, less reactive, you know, soften it, spread, widen it, gently, it, make it more spacious, so it's less brittle, it's less ready to crack it's less rest- ready to snap don't put too much pressure into it when you practice don't crank it up tight don't get psyched up on some big spiritual trip or another you know your mind then just kind of gets like a taut guitar string so that you flip out you know <laughs> make it soft, make it spacious and then the, the impressions, you get a chance to really witness the arising of the impression, the moment of going out to reach it and then letting it go. And you're coming home. It's really just this simple, in a way, this obvious, this ordinary. Nibana is very, very ordinary. That's why it's like, you know, but of course, there's this cosmos of places to go, things to be yeah. out there extraordinary wonderful, sublime fascinating intriguing <laughs> who wants the ordinary <laughs> so you know then it's up to us to just consider these things you know? consider these things this is only taught the said, "I only teach this out of compassion for your welfare yeah. for your welfare uh, for you because it's good and it's true mm. spare it in mind. Anyone? <coughs> oh.